Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So yesterday I decided to make some new recipes, make something I hadn't made before. I was going to cook some Mexican food from a a new chef that I've been thoroughly enjoying, Chef Rick Martinez. And so I decided to make a roasted tomatilla salsa. And as I'm making it, as I began to make it, I made a significant mistake. So I was seeding and cutting up a serrano pepper. And I said to myself... You know, I've never had a serrano pepper on its own. I've never just like tasted it to know what it's all about. I probably should. And I was probably thinking that this is what the the main character Carmi would do in the show The Bear. And so I probably just was kind of be re- trying to be real chefy. And so I just reached down onto my cutting board and grabbed about an inch-sized piece of serrano pepper and popped it in my mouth quickly realized something. The answer to how spicy is a serrano pepper is very. And then I realized something else. My water bottle was empty and my hands were covered in pepper oil. So I didn't want to go around touching everything that it would take to solve this. So I just fought through the pain and enjoyed it as much as you can enjoy the flavor of that pepper. Mistakes were made. Lessons were learned. And that's the way it goes in so many areas of our lives. When something happens, whether it's a good reaction or a bad reaction, we learn from it. Our experiences shape the way that we approach life from that point forward. This this can be something as simple as food preferences. You had something, you didn't like something. When somebody offers it to you, you say, thanks, but no thanks. I don't like that. Or it could be something more serious. Uh, Some of you are familiar with the book, The Body Keeps Score, that this is not just true of what happens to us physically with things that we eat or taste, but this is true of us emotionally, spiritually, physically. Here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. The same principle of learning from our past that applies in all of those areas of our life applies in our walk with Jesus and our faith in God as well. Far too many of us treat God with an attitude that goes something like this, what have you done for me lately? Our faith naturally has a recency bias. We are more concerned with the last 12 days, 12 weeks, than we are with the arc of the last 12 years of God's faithfulness to us. And so we're going to read Psalm 138. Psalm 138 is suggesting for us a different path forward. It's suggesting to us that we should have a posture of gratefulness, a posture of thanksgiving by remembering When we begin to approach Jesus in this way by being thoughtful about his faithfulness, it leads us to confidence and trust in what he's doing in our lives now. And so we look at our past to see what God has done, 
in order to grow in our faith of what he will do in our future. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Psalm 138. Uh, We're going to all stand together as I read it. If you don't have a Bible with you or on your phone, that's okay. We'll put it up on the screen behind me so that you can hear and read God's word as I uh, read it aloud to you. Psalm 138, a Psalm of David. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bound down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. the last section of the book of Psalms, what in your Bible might say book five, the kind of last 40 Psalms or so, are the Psalms that were the most popular when the people of Israel came back from the exile. They were the songs that were sung the most at the second temple. And so while David wrote this song, when this song became famous, it was 500 years later. It would be as if we found a Beethoven song and we're like, man, that's a That's a banger now, right? The people of Israel knew David had written this psalm, but it became a psalm of the people after the exile, people who had seen great hurt, great despair as they were taken out of their land, but people who had experienced great redemption as God returned them back. And so we see that he structures this psalm around this idea of thanksgiving, thanksgiving for what God has done. But he not only shows us that we should be thankful, he doesn't just say, hey, you should say thank you to God. He instructs us on how it's supposed to be our whole being that gives thanks to God. In the very beginning, did you catch it? He said, with my whole heart, that's his soul. And then he says, I'm going to sing praises. I'm going to give thanks with his mouth. And then he says, I'm going to bow down. When he says all of those things, he's mirroring every part of us as a human, our body, our soul, our words. It reminds me a lot of the prayer of confession that we use a lot here at City Church, the one that comes from the Book of Common Prayer. You you don't know that that's where it comes from, but when I say it, you'll go, oh yeah, that one. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. In much the same way, He is saying that our whole soul needs to be filled with gratitude. Everything that is in us, all-encompassing gratitude, that is what we're being encouraged towards. But he brings out another characteristic of, if that's true, if we're supposed to be grateful to God with our whole being, 
it's not just going to be something that happens in our soul with our words and with our bodies. It's going to be something that happens that we spiritually engage with. He says that it is a repudiation of the idols of our hearts. He tells us to give thanks in the face of all of those things that quickly distract us from God. To place our trust in his faithfulness over and against the empty promises that things like financial security and pleasure and the promise of control give to us. That's what he means. Did you catch it? It's a really strange phrase there in verse 1. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. What he's saying is that there are so many things in our lives, so many good things that we elevate to be ultimate things. The language of the Old Testament is idolatry, that all of these things that we turn into idols, the way that we combat them is by giving thanks to the true God in their face. This is aggressive language. This is the language of warfare. And so, yeah, sure, this all sounds good. You, you would expect your, your pastor, I would hope you would expect your pastor to say, you shouldn't worship anybody but our holy triune God. That's like a, a baseline kind of Christian Orthodox thing for me to say. And you all nod your heads and we all move on. But if we're too quick to move on, if we're too fast to move on, we miss that he's saying something, something pretty cutting to us. He's saying something pretty deep. What I'm doing, what David is asking, is for you to consider the things that seem good, that seem helpful, that seem wholesome in your life and mine that are actually distractions from God. I'm asking you to identify what are those good things in your life that you have made into God things in your life. And as you do that, speaking the praise of God towards them, trusting in the faithfulness of God instead of the lies that they say. That can be a scary prospect because the things that we actually worship seem good. They seem real. I mean, you know, having a growing portfolio is a good thing, right? Keeping my kids safe and protected, that's a wholesome value, right? Being able to manage and maintain in every situation that life throws at me, that's good, right? And the answer, of course, is maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. Because when we elevate those things higher than our worship of God, when those things become ultimate instead of him, they can be traps for us. And that's why David points us to what the true character of God is. Who is God? He is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He is a God of covenant love. Last week, I mentioned this idea that every time you see steadfast love in the Old Testament, and especially in Psalms, this is God's covenant love. We talked a little bit last week about his hesed, his covenant binding love towards us. It is steadfast. It is rock solid. It is who he is. And David says, all of those other things will abandon you, but God will not. All of those other things will fail you, but God will not. In fact, he stakes his very name on it. 
when David says that God has exalted his name and his word, this idea of name is the idea of reputation. Some of you grew up in a day and age, and, and maybe you were told by your parents when you sort of went to go play a sports game or, or went out into the neighborhood to do something, you know, just remember that you're representing our family when you go do that thing. I was never really a sports guy, so like never got that talk, but you know, plus the Woodall name is not one to be elevated that highly, historically speaking, but you all have heard that. You know that idea that our name is our reputation. God says, my name, my reputation is staked on my faithfulness to you, my people. And that should elicit from us a gratefulness. That should cause us to remember all of the times that God has been faithful to us despite our faithlessness. All of the times God has been good to us in spite of the fact that we never deserved it once. God stakes his reputation on his faithfulness to his people and tells us, remember that, rehearse that, say that over and over again, which is exactly what David does. David says, I remember, I called out to you. I prayed, I prayed and you answered and my soul increased in strength. David understood that he got it, that we have to remember what God has done for us. But he isn't just concerned with God's faithfulness in personal ways and in the past. He moves on to the fact that God is going to be faithful throughout the whole world. He starts talking about the kings of the earth. And throughout the Old Testament, kings were representative of their whole people. I mean, think about if you've read the Old Testament, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know this pattern that happens in the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles. The people of Israel will get a new king. And the Bible will either say, and he was a good king who served God like his grandfather David, or he was a bad king and reminded us a lot of Ahab. It kind of assigns one of two categories to every king. Well, guess what was true of the people of Israel during those different kings? If you had a good king, the people by and large were good and they worshiped the one true and living God. When you had a bad king, not so much. So here, David says that all the kings of the earth are going to sing the praises of God. The whole earth, all of the people, one day a song will rise up, not just in every language that is spoken today, but in every language that has been spoken, a song of praise. One day, the Bible says, the glory of God will cover the earth the way that the water covers the ocean. There is coming a day when the whole earth will sing God's praise. People from every tribe will sing. Why? David tells us why. Because they have heard God's promises and trusted in them. They have heard of God's faithfulness and trusted in them. The people of God, the people of Israel were meant to go out to the other nations around them and tell them about God's faithfulness, to tell them what God had done for them as a people. But if you've read your Old Testament, you know that the report card that would come back on the people of God for doing that would probably not be passing. Not even the like C's get degrees. 
In fact, we see this in bright contrast when God gives us the story of Jonah. God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, those Ninevites need to hear about me. They need to hear about my covenant faithfulness. They need to hear what I can do for them. Go tell them. And what does Jonah say? Nah. Nah. In fact, I'd rather flee from your presence, God, than go and tell those people about Jesus. Bad Jonah. Now, before you get too quick in condemning Jonah, just take a second, just take a moment to take some inventory in your own life. How often, how often have I said this? You know, I probably shouldn't tell my neighbor about the faithfulness of God. I should, I should wait and develop that relationship some more so that it's more meaningful when I do tell them about it. You know, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't tell that, that co-worker about what God has done in my life because, you know, I, I want to save that relationship and make sure it doesn't get too awkward. I'll just, I'll just wait for the game to come to me. I'll just wait for them to ask me about it. And how often do we explain away the chances we have to share the faithfulness of God in our lives? The people of Israel did, and maybe, just maybe, we're more like Jonah than we care to admit, and we do too. But even in the face of our cowardice, God is faithful to his promise. We can't wreck his plan. The whole earth will sing. David's quick to point out that doesn't mean that every human that ever lived is going to join in this chorus because God has a specific type of person he wants as a worshiper. Verse six shows God's character, who God is and who he wants to worship him. It says, God is enthroned on high. He is the great king above all kings and yet he regards the lowly. Those who freely admit they can't help themselves. God doesn't help those who help themselves. You know, the Bible never says that. Like we say that a lot. That's kind of like a cultural thing, except it's just not in the Bible. God doesn't help those who can't, who help themselves. In fact, God helps those who can't help themselves. Those of us who feel like our sinful habits are a cage that we can never escape from. Those of us who beg for God to break family patterns in our lives. Those of us whose sin is ever before us. Those of us who just can't even. If you find yourself among that list, then you find yourself as one of the lowly. One of the lowly who God regards. To regard someone is to not just see them, but to see them and act out on their behalf. I'm reminded of the story in Exodus where the people of God in Exodus chapter two cry out to God. And Exodus has this beautiful verse. It says, and God saw the people of Israel and God knew them. When we are lowly, when we cry out that we can't get it together, that we're not enough, God sees us and acts on our behalf. And he doesn't just act on our behalf. In Jesus, he dies on our behalf. In Jesus, he rises from the dead to conquer death for us. If you are the lowly, you are the ones who get to participate in the life of God. 
new life, the life of the ages, eternal life joined in union with Jesus himself. God regards the lowly, but he's got something else to say about the haughty, doesn't he? The haughty he knows from afar off. He knows them from far away. When I think about this, I was thinking this morning about people that I know from far away. Um, there is this guy that works in coffee shops around St. Pete, and he's a computer programmer. I've, I've seen his screen, and it looks like, you know, something from a 90s hackers movie. So either he's a hacker or he's a computer programmer. But he wears um, wrist guards when he is, like, on his computer. So he, like, you know, shows up at Intermezzo gets his laptop out, plugs it in, and then pulls on the wrist guards and goes to town. I know that that guy exists. I don't even know that guy's name. I know him from afar. There are these like Southern European guys. I don't know if they're Turkish or Greek or Italian, but they sit in the corner of Craft Cafe almost every morning drinking coffee and like, you know, being buddies. I don't know what they do, but they're, they're always there. I know them from afar. God says the haughty. I know like glove programmer guy and Southern European dudes. Who are the haughty? The haughty are those who can't see their need for saving. Um, there's a, a theologian, Nancy uh, de Classe Walford. I think that's how you pronounce her name. She says this, the haughty are those who will not publicly claim their pain and ask for help from God. They won't admit that their sinful choices have caused themselves and others pain. And even if they will admit that, they won't realize or admit that they need Jesus to be the one who steps in and fixes them. God regards the lowly but he knows the haughty from far off. And so David not only tells us that we need to give thanks with our whole soul to be reminded of what God has done for us, but also what God will do in the future, that he will be faithful to his words. But David closes by saying, now let's not allow this to be impersonal. Let's not allow this just to be something that is kept for the future. No, since God has been faithful to him, since God has kept his covenant with David, since God's character is known through his word, David has quiet confidence in the face of troubles right now because of what God has already done. He doesn't just, doesn't just ignore his enemies, but he is able to walk through their midst. It's as if David is remembering his own words in Psalm 23, right? Remember, though I walk through the valley where the shadow of death is, I will fear no evil for you are with me. David says that he is able to have confidence in what God will do in his present difficulties because he remembers how God has been faithful to him in the past. God is at work right now, just like he has been in every other age. God is just as at work in our lives, in your life and mine, than he was on the day of the Passover and the Exodus. 
God is just as present in your life and mine as he was for David when he was facing Saul and Goliath at various points in his life. The truth of the gospel is just as true today as it was on the first Good Friday and the first Easter morning. There is no change in that because all of it is based on the faithfulness, the steadfast covenant love of God that isn't changing and it isn't something that's out there. It's something that's true in your life and mine. No, we're not free from troubles. No, trusting in Jesus does not make every day better than the day before and every bank account slightly larger. No, David admits that there are going to be hard times coming. There are going to be enemies and there are going to be troubles. But in the face of those troubles, what David knows is that he has a rock. He has the truth of God's continual, never giving up faithfulness. And so he finishes the psalm by asking God to do one thing for him. Do one thing. Do not forsake the work of your hands. What's David talking about? What's the work of God's hand to David here? Beloved, he means you. He means me. We are the work of God's hand. You are the crown of all creation. Despite the fact that you were made from dust, God has given to you this unique privilege of being his image bearer, his herald on earth. You are his unique creation. In Ephesians 2, Paul puts it this way, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. The force of this idea of workmanship is the idea behind a craftsman, an artist. You are his poetry given to the world. He is faithful to that. We are the crown and jewel of his creation. And so, beloved, trust that if you have seen God be faithful in the past to you, he will continue to be faithful to you in the future. You need to learn, we need to learn to share those stories. We need to learn to be quick to look and see the faithfulness of God. And then share that faithfulness with others. Because when we see God being faithful to others, you know what you probably think? Maybe he'll do it for me too. We need to learn how to elicit those, to to draw those stories out from one another. Because the more that we rehearse the faithfulness of God to one another, the more trust we will have in what God is going to do in our lives in the future. And so that's part of what we are created to be. We're created to be a community where we see and share the faithfulness of God in our lives and see and share the faithfulness of God in one another's lives so that we have trust in the future that just as God has been a faithful covenant father to us in the past, he'll continue to do the same in the future. Let's normalize telling your fellow folks here at City Church how God has been faithful to you.
Let's hear the stories of his never wavering love because when we do this, we decenter ourselves. We decenter ourselves as the heroes of the story. And we begin to see Jesus as the hero of all of our stories, of his faithfulness, what he is doing in each one of our lives. As we see that, as we realize that, as our minds are open, as our soul sees that more and more, we're confident that he will be with us in the future. And not only that, but we're able to be grateful for all of the ways that he has been faithful. Let's pray.